Welcome to Wise at Work, the podcast exploring the intersection of science, culture, and meaning in the workplace. I'm Corey Smith, the CEO of Wisdom Labs, and your host. In this episode, Wisdom Labs' Dr. Parneet Paul talks with Emiliana Simon-Thomas. Emiliana Simon-Thomas, PhD, is a science director at UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center. She oversees the Student Research Fellowship Program, runs key initiatives, and co-teaches Berkeley X's landmark online program, The Science of Happiness. She serves as an expert voice on human prosociality, as well as empirically supported approaches to fostering a kinder, more compassionate society worldwide. She also advises organizations on boosting happiness, both from a product perspective and through policies aimed in enhancing a culture of trust, agility, and well-being. And now, Emiliana Simon-Thomas, interviewed by Dr. Parneet Paul. Welcome to the Wise at Vogue podcast, Emiliana. Thank you, Parneet. It's such a privilege to be here with you. Wonderful. And it's great to have you back. I really enjoyed our conversation the last time around. So for our listeners, if you haven't checked that out, please listen to the Happiness at Work podcast that we did, where you helped us understand what happiness is and what happiness isn't. Uh And you also pointed out some very practical strategies that we can use both as individuals and employers to get happier at work. And today, we're going to dive deeper into this topic, remembering, as you pointed out, that happiness is more than free lunches or only positive emotional experiences at work. It also has to do with our ability to lean into the difficult moments, lean into the conflicts, learn from them, while also building a community of support at work. And you and your colleagues at the Greater Good Science Center have analyzed all of the research in this area and put together a framework that you call the PERC model that I'd like to dive into. So PERC stands for Purpose, Engagement, Resilience, and Kindness. Starting with purpose. Now, I know I've heard this a lot. You know, what's your passion? Uh, Follow your bliss. And if you follow your passion, the money will follow as well. But it seems that there's only a very small percentage of people who are lucky enough to earn a living indulging in their passion Mm. or who seem to have found that sense of meaning and purpose in their life. And it makes the rest of us quite jealous. (laughs) So I'd love for you to clarify, is passion the same as purpose? If not, what is purpose? Yeah, so what a wonderful introduction to the idea of purpose and the range of different ways that people think about purpose. Indeed, there are reasons to connect passion or in some circles we might call it job crafting, right? This is a way of thinking about your job in a way that really matches your skills and your strengths as a person, strengths matching. These are all different ideas that circulate when people talk about what it means to have a sense of purpose at work. I like to define purpose at work as having a sense that what you're doing matters to something beyond yourself, that what you're doing is making an impact, is having a difference. And it's not just about your salary. It's not just about your status at work or your achievements. It's really about having an impact on the world, 
humanity, a cause that particularly matters to you, even if it's aesthetics, right? Human aesthetics, if you're an artist, if it's storytelling and passing along of archetypal wisdom, if you're a playwright or somebody who does theater. This isn't just for healthcare professionals, right? And the other funny thing about it is that even for professions that seem to come natural with purpose, like, you know, I want to be a doctor because I want to help people. And that's the fundamental purpose. And you feel that going into medical school or nursing or whatever healthcare profession you choose, it can be hard to kind of hold on to that, right? Over the course of experience, of our busy lives, of the particular kinds of trainings that we encounter, it can be hard to just remember or think of or readily be aware of that sort of founding sense of purpose we came in with. So having that awareness isn't just something that comes easily to certain people more than others. It's also something we all need to work on. We all need to deliberately remember and reflect on how our work aligns with something that really matters to us, with some kind of core value. And those core values tend, again, to be about service, tend to be about something self-transcendent. And are there any practices that we can do to tap into those core values or remind ourselves of that purpose? Yeah, well, from the research perspective, we love to do studies where we give people a list of values. And then we say, hey, look at these and rank them from most valuable, most important, most heartfelt to maybe lesser uh, on the realm of possibility. And then in studies, we'll ask people to write about why that top one, number one, the thing they rank the highest be it something like achievement or something like universalism or benevolence. These are listed items that appear on something called the Schwartz Values Inventory. So we'll show people this list of terms, ask people to rank them, and then write about in you know really kind of natural and free-flowing ways why that value or the top one or two values are so important to them. And just doing that exercise of reflecting on what really matters to you is a way to bring it back into your awareness, to reintroduce it into your calculus of decision making and prioritizing what you do with your time and what you think about day in and day out. And people tend to act and behave in accordance with those values when they take a moment to reflect on them. So just reflecting on your values, that's one person where you're kind of being given a choice of options. The other is to sit around with a group of people with your team and say, hey, what matters most to you? And have everybody come up with a list, distill that list into something sort of consensus-like, and then have the same conversation. Like, well, what are we going to do to really imagine sort of aligning our day-to-day decisions, actions, behaviors, policies, initiatives, so that they really buoy that value, right? How can we enact our experiences day in and out to really match those values? So it's a little bit self-driven, but then it's also something that you can turn to researchers to get some guidance from. I love that idea. I think this is such a valuable practice if more employers and teams can find the time, you know, just a few minutes, maybe once a month, just get around and talk about what's really important and surface what might be lurking underneath that often doesn't get discussed, you know, when we're busy with the day to day and we need to sort of meet our goals. 
What about those times when you find yourself in a team or a company that's not aligned with your personal values? Is it an indication that you just need to go somewhere else? Or is there a way to still tap into your passion and your purpose within the context of that world? Yeah, I mean, that's such a great question. And it probably is an experience that many people have. And there's kind of two answers. The first answer is maybe it's a lurking issue, as you so nicely put before, that People actually generally do have values that are a little different than the ones you're feeling day in and day out at a personal level. But for some reason, the organization or the company or the business has kind of aligned itself with other values for other reasons that maybe aren't even cognizant, right? It's like, well, our value is to serve shareholders maximal profits and to compete other companies out of the marketplace and, you know, really kind of hardcore competitive profit values. Maybe those weren't on purpose. Maybe those weren't deliberate. Maybe those just kind of happened at a culture level. And companies can talk within their employees and within their leadership and go, huh, wait a minute. Are those the values we chose? Are those the values that we kind of just got along for the ride with? And maybe we can have a conversation about our personal values and a conversation about our company values and try to really think about where there are opportunities to bring them into alignment, right? How can our personal values really be reflected in our company values. And so maybe it's a company-wide endeavor. On the other hand, if you find yourself having values that really you can't find any purchase with in terms of the organization that you're working with, you're actually putting yourself at risk of burnout. Having a real mismatch in core values between what matters to you and the ambitions and directives of your organization that you're working for can make you feel burnt out. And burnout is a nice lead into the next category of the PERC model, which is engagement. Mm -hmm. And engagement is a huge metric that employers and HR teams look for. They're constantly serving their employees on this parameter. Could you clarify for us what does engagement mean? And as you do that, where does engagement end and workaholism begin? Yeah, such a great question, because engagement is one of those funny terms that gets defined in many, many different ways. You'll read a Gallup report and look at their survey that they use to assess engagement, and it it has a lot of different questions on it. You'll read sort of the best places to work, look at the questions they're asking to gauge engagement, and they'll be really different. And so for me, I've kind of had to survey all the different ways that people have defined it and then land on one A way of thinking about engagement that really allows it to have its own narrow space that's different than purpose or resilience or kindness, because oftentimes surveys will kind of blend across them. When I think about engagement, I think about it as having a kind of experience and mental orientation towards work that makes it possible for you to experience what Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi called flow. So flow means that you sometimes get so immersed in the work that you're doing that time escapes you. You sort of lose track of all the other things that might normally distract you or grab your attention, and you get a lot done. And you feel really energized about it and excited to talk about it with other people. So there's kind of an enthusiasm about engagement. There's a vigor and a dedication, this kind of motivation to be at work, to do what you really love doing, and to celebrate the progress that you've made in doing the work that you do. And so how is that different from workaholism? 
It's interesting because workaholics don't necessarily enjoy lots of benefits other than perhaps some degree of professional success, Mm -hmm. right? Over time, if they're spending, you know, many, 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 many hours doing work as opposed to hanging out with friends or um, extracurricular activities that are different from work, maybe they're accomplishing a lot. They're crossing a lot of things off the list. But what happens is, as you sort of suggested earlier, they end up being more likely to experience burnout. They tend to uh, have less job satisfaction. They tend to be more likely to leave their jobs. It's interesting. There's a recent study showing that workaholism differs from engagement in a certain motivational orientation. Workaholics tend to take what's called a prevention focus, Mm -hmm. meaning that they're trying to figure out how not to fail. They're trying to figure out how to avoid setbacks, how to not make mistakes. And so they're kind of hyper vigilant to crossing every single possibility for mistakes off the list. People who are engaged have a more optimistic promotion focus, meaning they're looking for ways to improve upon what's going well. And they're approaching situations with a kind of open mind around what are the creative opportunities? How can we do well in the areas that we're good at and continue to be successful? And so this difference in kind of worrying about what might go wrong versus trying to orient to where the opportunities lie ends up being an interesting predictor of whether being someone who works really hard, puts in a lot of time, you know, puts your heart into what you do, ends up leaving you in a position of being a workaholic versus being in a position of being, you know, deeply engaged in the work that you do. Because yeah, you'll hear people who say, I work a lot, and I love it. And my family is happy and healthy. And my kids are doing great. We're all really balanced, even though for, you know, average (laughs) metrics, I actually work a lot of hours. So it's not always about working fewer hours um, for everyone. You can be really engaged at work so long as you're not approaching work as this potential threat. I love that. And it reminds me of some other research which was done in the Netherlands recently, where they looked at entrepreneurs specifically, Uh and they measured their levels of passion. Mm -hmm. And they distinguished between obsessive passion and harmonious passion. And it was very in line with what you just mentioned about the difference between workaholism and engagement. So they found that the entrepreneurs who were obsessive were the ones who were externally motivated. So they were motivated by status and fame and making lots of money. But this also meant that they were constantly working. They were very anxious about their work. So actually their productivity went down, their performance went down. And they found it very difficult to detach from work and spend time with their family and friends. So when they were working, they were guilty that they were not spending time with their family and friends and vice versa. What was also interesting was they seemed to have sort of a fixed mindset. Mm. It was like, you know, this endeavor, their startup or business was sort of their one and only chance for success in life. And they were very, very attached to it, as opposed to the entrepreneurs who displayed the harmonious passion Mm -hmm. and were fully engaged you know, at work, putting in the hours, but also able to detach themselves and sort of had this intrinsic motivation of something that they wanted to bring to the world. And so I think this connects really well back to that sense of purpose that they brought to their startup endeavor. So, you know, as we're tracking this, we are learning that it's important to check in with our values, connect with our purpose, you know, really see and sort of maybe even 
take stock if we're sort of on that borderline between engagement and workaholism, because I think a lot of us are on that edge if we don't watch out for it. So what else would you recommend as sort of practical strategies for moving more towards the engagement end of the spectrum? Yeah, well, one of the key opportune spaces is in our emotions. One of the things that makes it a lot easier for people to engage at work is experiencing what we call positive emotions. So enthusiasm, pride, Amusement, right? When we joke around with our colleagues, when we feel that kind of trust and safety in our workplace, it's a lot easier to be engaged. Just contrast that with feeling worried or anxious or conflictual, all of those more negative anxiety related emotions, antisocial emotions, really get in the way of being able to focus. Right. Whereas the positive emotions tend to leave us in a place where we can think in more innovative terms, we can be more creative, we can connect with other people in meaningful ways. So like most other things that happen in our mental life, it's a matter of habit and practice. And so if somebody says, well, I don't know, how can I bring more positive emotions to work? How can I experience more amusement and levity in the workplace? Well, one way is just to actually keep track of it and reflect on it more. There's an exercise called three funny things. Mm -hmm. So at the end of each day, can you get out a little journal or open up a word processor and just type in, take, you know, six minutes, type in the three things that happened at work that day that were funny. Somebody made a joke, something silly happened, something unexpected happened, really just kind of dwelling on those amusing, lightweight moments where you just felt relaxed and connected to people around you is a way to make those more prominent in your day-to-day experience, right? So just bring those in. It's more powerful than we think. The other exercise I like to bring to mind when I think about engagement has to do with how you think about challenges at work, right? Most of us face deadlines or demands, competing multiple demands in a short amount of time that can make us feel anxious about, you know, do I have what it takes to get this done? And what happens if I don't get it done? Or even just like, I'll never have what it takes to get it done. And those ways of thinking about challenges that we face really put us in a position of feeling pervasive stress and anxiety that makes it hard for us to engage. We're distracted by these other competing demands instead of able to just immerse ourselves in the task in front of us. And so if there's a way to think about the challenges and setbacks at work that involves some agency, some self-determination, some autonomy, take it. And that means instead of being like, this challenge is just something I have to deal with, this is how things are, it'll always be this way, thinking, huh, a lot of other people are probably dealing with challenges like this. This is malleable. There's no reason that there's not a way to fix this. You can't expect it to happen in 10 seconds or even 10 days or 10 months. But at least having that idea in your mind that this is changeable and that I can be part of the solution to the problem that is causing this difficulty for me is a way to just feel a sense of ownership. I'm important. What I'm doing matters. And the more I do it, the more impact I'll have. And this is a way, again, to sort of channel that intrinsic motivation, that sense that I'm here to do something to make a difference. Love that. You know, so you're sort of alluding to maintaining a growth mindset. Yeah, that's exactly right. And also offering ourselves some self-compassion yeah. in those in those difficult moments and saying that, you know, I'm not the only one. Yeah, this is common. 
is so close to the deadline that I haven't been able to make yet. And this segues really well into sort of the third pillar of the perk model, which is resilience, yeah. this whole idea of can we not just bounce back from adversity, but as we like to say, bounce better? Yeah. And how can we grow and learn through the challenges and setbacks? And this is where practices around mindfulness, emotional intelligence come really handy. Mm-hmm. I wanted to discuss a particular aspect of emotional resilience, which is authenticity. Yeah and how we can be a little more authentic at work. And again, this is one of those words that's used really often at work, you know, bring your whole self to work. And we're going to create cultures of psychological safety where everybody will feel comfortable just being themselves. But the truth of the matter is, a lot of the time, we are constantly self-regulating And we're constantly having to keep track of our emotions Mm -hmm. uh, when we're interacting with clients, with customers, and especially in healthcare with patients who might be going through a difficult challenge. But also somebody, for example, in a call center who's dealing with irate customers all day. (laughs) And then in addition to managing our emotions in that moment, we then sort of feel like we have to fake it, like we have to suppress the difficult emotions that are coming up for us. So yeah, I'd love for you to dive a little bit deeper into that. And what is the research showing us? You know, can we truly be authentic at work? Yeah, well, what I love that you brought up was the term emotional intelligence. And I love that you brought that up because yes, we can be truly authentic at work, but we're not very good at it. And we're not very good at it largely because we lack skills of emotional intelligence. There's this funny pushback on bring your whole self to work or bring your authentic self to work because you don't want to invite someone to come to work and scream and yell or pound their (laughs) fists or just go on and on and on about some issue in their personal life that is going to disrupt the flow of everybody else's opportunity to get work done. At the same time, you don't want somebody to sit there stewing in their own agony and suffering about a deep and profound challenge that they're facing in life. So where's the middle ground, right? How do we invite a class of people to share space, to coordinate effort, and to collaborate while honoring the fact that at any time, any proportion of those people is going to be struggling with something real that's happening in life. How do we create the psychological safety that I do think is actually really, really important and powerful? And it comes with a combination of allowing people to be authentic, but also providing them with the resources to be as emotionally intelligent as they possibly can be, right? What we know about emotional intelligence is that it's actually more predictive of productivity and success in the workplace as IQ, right? We all think, oh, intelligence is this like super important thing. But in fact, being able to identify and understand your own emotions, being able to regulate them well, and that means sort of embracing the difficult ones, knowing when to ask for help, knowing when to take a break if you need to, a break from the kinds of regulation that maybe you have to do all the time if you're a healthcare provider. It's called emotional labor because it takes effort, right? If you have to kind of 
hold yourself together around a series of other people who are deeply and profoundly suffering as the support person over and over again. That's work. It's not bad work. It's not depleting you at a profound level, but it is effort that you need to recover from. And so we need to allow those kinds of breaks. Okay, so I said knowing your own emotions. I said being able to regulate your own emotions, including seeking support when you need it, understanding other people's emotions, right? And then finally, being able to use emotions wisely in social interactions. So if you're bringing your authentic self to work, and that means you come in after a disagreement with your spouse in the morning, and you're still feeling angry about it, and you start to act in a hostile way with a colleague about something kind of unimportant, you're not handling your emotions in a healthy way in that social interaction. You're sort of accidentally letting it bleed from one situation to another. So how do we deal with those feelings and use them to be productive and collaborative at work without kind of forcing ourselves to stifle, right? And there are ways, there are ways to just be really honest with somebody and say, oh, you know what, instead of me fighting with you about whose job it was to finish that little task before we left the office last night, I'm going to tell you right now, oh, listen, I had a little argument with my spouse this morning, and I'm kind of trying to like grapple with that. I need a minute. Can we talk about whatever we need to talk about in 15 minutes and, you know, put a time in the calendar and go do it. And by then you've had a moment, right? So there are ways to strengthen our skills of emotional intelligence, which will make us really effective at being authentic when we bring our full authentic selves to work. That's really helpful. And it also makes me start to think about how we can create those environments within our teams where it's also okay at some points, not all day, all the time, to just be able to express whatever difficulty or difficult interaction that you may have had with a client or a customer. And just sort of, you know, laid out on the table in an authentic way and just share that, not necessarily looking for resolution, but just the opportunity to be heard by your colleague and hopefully the colleague can lend you a kind a shoulder to lean on in that moment. Yeah, I mean, here's the funny thing is that a lot of us come to work thinking that we don't want to be an imposition or a burden on our colleagues. And so we hold back on talking about how we feel about anything other than the enthusiasm we have about finishing in time to meet a deadline, <laughs> right? Yeah. We don't want to say, hey, I'm really worried about this. I'm feeling inadequate. I'm concerned that I'm not going to be able to fulfill the expectation that I've set for myself or that maybe I think you have for me. What can we do, right? But saying that has this incredibly powerful impact impact one on yourself, right, to really notice and name your feelings really genuinely and honestly, and in a granular way, right, instead of mm -hmm. just being like, I'm upset. It's important to say I'm upset. That's a great start. But are you frustrated? Are you afraid? Are you disappointed? Right? There's all this nuance in our emotional landscape that we tend not to kind of allow in the workplace, but really naming it, we know research-wise that it already helps you begin to recover, right? You begin to feel a little bit less kind of aroused by that emotional state by just identifying and naming it out loud. And when you're naming it out loud to another person, the impact is even better. And what we think is that the other person is not going to want to hear that. But actually, most people really like to be supportive. They really like to help. And it's almost an honor, right? It's mm -hmm. almost an honor to be invited to be 
a person of support in the precious moments where people are facing strife. And a lot of people will feel that. I mean, we all think of like TV sitcoms where there's the complainer, the underminer, who's always <laughs> sort of coming in and talking about what's terrible and making everybody feel bad. You know, that is only the result of many, many steps of dysfunction where there's very low emotional intelligence. The dynamics of power and hierarchy are strange and not psychologically safe. This is why we end up with something like PERC with lots of different facets to it and not just one solution like, here's your pill that you could take for happiness <laughs> at work. No, it's a lot of different things and they all kind of pertain to different challenges. And regrettably, the ultimate challenge for every person who's interested in this topic is to kind of test them out. It's like a recipe book. Let me see what is my biggest challenge. Oh, here's the thing they say helps with that. Let me try it and see how mm -hmm. it works. And mm -hmm. if it does, I'll start to share it with other people. I'll try to think of ways to build it into an initiative or a policy, etc. So yeah, I mean, people like to help each other. We forget that. And Jeffrey Pfeffer has written about this. He's yes. a professor at Stanford. And yeah, everybody assumes, oh, I don't want to ask for help. But in fact, it's almost an act of grace to offer somebody else the opportunity to meaningfully help you. As we sort of come to the last pillar of the PERC model, which is kindness, you know, it's intuitive to think that, of course, being kind, being grateful, being compassionate at work, of course, that's going to boost your happiness levels. And of course, there's plenty of research to back that up as well. But what I'm interested in is how can we do that, not just when things are going well, but how can we be grateful and compassionate during conflict? And, you know, you've pointed out that conflict at work is inevitable, but destructive conflict is optional. So talk to me about reconciliation, navigating conflict with more kindness and compassion. What does that actually look like? So I think it starts with a shift in how you think about conflict. For one, I think people believe that we should try to avoid conflict at work in general, right? Well, let's just either avoid it by adopting a kind of domineering hierarchy where conflict is not tolerated, or avoid it by having a really kind of touchy-feely, gentle, we're also nice to each other kind of climate or culture in the workplace. And so everybody's averse to confronting anyone else about anything. The reality is, is that conflict is inevitable. You know, research on families show that siblings fight like three to seven times an hour. Anybody who's a parent will relate to that experience. And all of that, just to those parents out there, all of that is really good news. They're figuring it out. They're going to be better later in life, having gone through <laughs> and figured out how to deal and manage with those conflicts. But in the workplace, you know, conflict is going to happen. There's always change. There's always progress. There's always fluctuation from outside, sort of market forces, changes in demand and supply. And, and all of that is going to lead to things having to adapt. And change is hard. Humans don't really always want change, right? At least they don't want it unless it's their own idea. <laughs> so right. you've got this thing that comes down from somewhere else and says, hey, you've got to do something differently than how you've been doing it comfortably and easily and you have a lot of confidence and feel good about. And that's actually conflict. And it doesn't necessarily feel interpersonal. But oftentimes when people feel angry at work about something like that, when we feel angry, 
our mind orients towards looking for a person to blame. That's just something we understand from the science of emotions. And so that puts us in kind of this orientation towards likelihood of experiencing an interpersonal conflict about something that may or may not have anything to do with the relationship at hand. So just realizing that conflict is inevitable. And the second part of that is that humans are actually really, really good at reconciling, Mm -hmm. and that that's what we prefer, right? Instead of this other idea that we should hold grudges, and that we should stay mad. Uh, Franz de Waal written books about the primates and his research colonies coming back together, consoling each other after an argument and reconciling and forgiving within minutes, right? It's not that they get in a fight, the alpha wins, the other one gets shunted off into some remote place and they never talk again, right? They work it out. We're built with similar machinery. We want to work it out. And so again, thinking a little differently, conflict's going to happen. We're meant to work it out. So how do we do it? Well, once we decide, okay, I'm there, I want to do that, we can all get a lot better at apologizing, Mm-hmm. And apologizing's hard, but it's not that hard, right? And you can role play it with a, a friend who you care about. Sure. Hey, I'm just going to say sorry to you like five times today, and I'm going to do it for the next week. And then next <laughs> time you really have a chance to say sorry, those words are going to come out of your mouth more easily, right? And you apologize in a way that really acknowledges the harm that you might have caused intentionally or not, right? It convinces the other person that you're very unlikely to do whatever it is that you did that time, and you're going to do whatever you can to avoid causing that harm again or creating the issue that caused that harm again. And then the other piece is forgiveness. Like when somebody does do something that makes you feel like you've been wronged or maligned or somehow treated unfairly, holding on to that and letting that emotion kind of define any future moment where you come into contact with that person is a disservice to yourself because that emotion's unpleasant, that anger, that hostility. And instead you can go, you know what? I'm not going to hold this anymore. And next time I see that person, I'm going to know that it wasn't their deep and profound intent out of total maliciousness to harm me. And now, obviously, there are circumstances that aren't characterized that way, but I'm talking about the most often case in the workplace. And I'm not going to hold it anymore. They're who they are. I'm who I am. And I forgive this situation for having happened. You don't have to try to be friends with them. You don't have to try to like hang out with them to form a new friendship. But just not holding on to that anger is a really important part of it, because in all likelihood, you will need to work with them again. You will need to figure out ways to collaborate. And it's really not helpful to have hostility sort of in your mind when you're in a position to collaborate with someone again. So apology, forgiveness, there's all kinds of skills about bringing up difficult topics that have to do with instead of trying to blame someone or accuse someone, describing how you feel. Mm -hmm. I feel this way. I am concerned about this. I am worried about this experience. I am upset. I am frustrated. Any number of specific emotions you can use and getting really good at listening. And the first thing most of us can do is not have our phones out. (laughs) If we decide we want to talk with somebody about a conflict or some kind of difference or disagreement, you know, make a time, put Mm -hmm. it in the calendar, sit down and start with, I feel this way. I feel this way about what happened. And, you know, don't look at your phone and you'll see things will likely move in a direction towards resolution. 
I'm reminded of two strategies that have been really helpful for me that tie into how to manage conflict. And one is to remember the impact that all of that anger and anxiety is having on my own health. Yeah. So sort of in a self-interested way, but I think it's useful to remember that whatever may have happened, how can I protect my body and not increase the inflammation that's happening in my cells that's going to predispose me to tons of chronic diseases that I do not want to develop? And the second thing is just something that I've learned growing up, which is, if you can, can you try to interact with somebody each day as if you met them for the first time, mm -hmm. which is sort of this whole idea that you just mentioned around forgiveness and letting go and just starting fresh mm -hmm. every single day. Yeah. So as we wind up our conversation today, Emiliana, I know that there's such a wealth of wisdom in what you've shared. I just want to think about organizations and how they can embody kindness and compassion in their cultures, given that even though we know from an evolutionary perspective that, you know, we survived millennia because we were collaborative and cared for one another. But really what we see out there in the business world is really the opposite. We see a lot of competition. There's a lot of mindset of scarcity and what's going to happen in the future. How can companies be compassionate or is there evidence that compassionate companies can survive this kind of business environment? Yeah, I mean, I think that the compassion for a company can happen in a few different ways. And one way is tied to the first topic we covered, which is purpose, right? What are we here for? What service are we providing? Tech companies right now seem to be very interested in shifting their footprint from something that is really just about ads and revenue to their potential to actually benefit humanity. And compassion is part of that second topic space. It's about how can we attune ourselves to suffering that's happening in the world and genuinely kind of follow an intention to do something to alleviate that suffering. So if you can weave compassion into the product or the service that you provide, you're putting yourself in a position to offer something to the world that actually is needed, right? You're serving a need rather than just providing something for the sake of profit, right? In terms of the internal culture or climate of a company, creating a climate where people can know that if they come to work in a state of struggle, that their needs are going to be addressed, heard, maybe even met, right, is something that's going to enable them to be able to engage. They're going to be able to interact with other people in ways that are sort of mutually supportive and friendly. All of that ends up making people more productive, making people less likely to leave their jobs, right? If you feel like you've been supported during a time of difficulty, this can be a very powerful way for an employee to feel like, oh, I'm committed, mm -hmm. right? I'm willing to actually go the extra mile because I feel like the company and my colleagues went the extra mile for me. And this is one of the low-lying dynamics of altruism, right? That we like to benefit each other and we keep track of who has benefited us and who we want to benefit in a way that guides our motivation moving forward. So having companies where people address each other's struggles and support each other when things are going wrong is a really powerful way to get everyone on the same team, to orient people towards what we might call a superordinate goal, right? To feel like we're together in this. We have a sense of common humanity. We are going to reach these other sort of company-specific goals that we might have. 
And what a wonderful way, because as we and as companies start to think more compassionately, it encompasses the entire work model that we've been talking about because we're tapped into our purpose, which means we'll be more engaged, we'll be more resilient because we'll stick together and help each other out while being kind and navigating conflict a little more skillfully. Yeah, yeah. It's often the case that the practices that work in one of these categories also has spillover effects in the other categories. (laughs) So yeah, it's nice. Fantastic. Well, Emiliana, where can our listeners find out more about your work and the Greater Good Science Center? So to find out more about the Greater Good Science Center, you can go to greatergood.berkeley.edu. And what we're doing is writing articles every day, multiple times a day, about the science that relays the importance of our social connections, our tendency towards generosity, and our sense of belonging and meaningful contribution to community, to health and well-being. I also co-instruct a series of online courses on the edX.org platform focused on happiness at work. So there's three of them. The first one is Foundations of Happiness at Work. The second one is Mindfulness and Resilience to Stress at Work. And the third one is Empathy and Emotional Intelligence at Work. And in these courses, we really dive deep into the topics that we've been talking about today, Parni. Yeah, if you want to learn more, that's where you can find more. Wonderful. And you've also done an amazing seven-part series for our app, Why Is It Work, on happiness at work. So that's going to be released in October. So something to look forward to for our listeners as well. Yay! (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Emiliana. It's been an absolute delight speaking with you today. And thank you so much for your wisdom. Yeah, thank you for inviting me to be part of this movement. It's an honor and a privilege. Hi, it's Corey, co-founder and CEO of Wisdom Labs. At Wisdom Labs, we're helping companies become wiser workplaces. To create this positive impact in organizations, we cultivate change at the level of the individual, team, and company culture. We see businesses as the biggest lever for positive social change at scale. After all, business still holds the most power and influence in our world, And as individuals, company cultures, and entire stakeholder networks become more wise, we all benefit. To learn more about Wisdom Labs, check out wisdomlabs.com. Thanks for listening.